In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of a, a king who has a servant who owes him a great deal, we'll say a million dollars. And the king gives him time and he can't pay it back and so he's about to sentence him to prison and he's sentencing his wife and his children into slavery in order to pay back this debt. And the servant just pleads with him, just falls down and, and begs for mercy. Please give me time, I will pay back this debt. And the king takes pity on him. The king decides, okay, I will forgive the debt. And indeed, he doesn't even just give him time to pay it back. He completely forgives him the debt that he owes, this huge amount, and sends him on his way. Well, then that king learns a little time later that that very servant found someone underneath him, a servant of his own, who owed him a little bit, say a hundred dollars. And that servant's servant asked him for mercy. Please give me time to pay back this debt. But the servant who had been forgiven this million dollar debt refused to have mercy upon the servant who owed him this small amount and indeed demanded it of him and threw him in prison until he could pay back what he owed. And when the king learned of this, <clears throat> he was very angry with the servant and, and rebuked him and admonished him. I forgave you this enormous debt and you have been unwilling to forgive this small debt of your own servant. Well, there's a religious hypocrisy at the heart of that story that Jesus wanted to expose in his hearers. The refusal to dispense mercy to the indebted servant indicated a failure to recognize the severity of his own debt, which had been forgiven by his master. And the same kind of dynamic is at work in the group that Paul admonishes in Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have a copy of the Bible nearby, I'd invite you to turn there as we continue to walk through Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, Paul announced, of course, that the theme of his letter would be the gospel of Christ, the power of God for salvation, in which the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, the second half of the first chapter, Paul has put the human race on notice. The wrath of God is kindled against human unrighteousness. It is present in the world today in God's giving up of sinners to their idolatrous choices, and it is a future reality that we will all experience, right? That all human beings will face. He provided some specific examples of humanity's idolatrous exchanges, including worship of created things, the inversion and distortion of sexual desires and relations, and a long list of vices to round out the first chapter in verses 29 through 32. The big idea underneath all of those verses is essentially this. All human beings are guilty of sin before God and are under his just wrath. Now, it would be understandable if in light of such a bleak prognosis, you were inclined to search for some way around it, 
some way to soften the news. But Paul isn't done with the bad news yet. Not until he's sure we understand our predicament and are sufficiently convinced that there's no way out of it on our own terms. One commentator describes the passage here beginning in chapter 2 and really carrying through verse 20 of chapter 3. So the next chapter and a half, he describes it this way. It's as though Paul is cutting off escape routes for those who wish to avoid the conclusions of chapter 1. Because chapter 1 is bleak and very bad news. We are all sinners and we are all under God's wrath and this is reality we must face. And so people begin to perhaps look for ways around it or perhaps this doesn't apply to me and Paul begins methodically one by one cutting off those escape routes to say no, you will face this. So in chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, people say, well, perhaps I'll escape God's wrath because I'm morally superior to other sinners. Maybe I'm not all that bad, right? I read Romans 1, 18 through 32, and I go, that doesn't describe me. I'm not really that bad. Well, Paul's going to talk in these verses about how we are deceived if we believe that about ourselves. In verses 12 through 16, this would be a particularly Gentile response. Perhaps I'll escape God's wrath because I haven't had access to God's law. So maybe somebody could make the claim, I just didn't have access to the word of God. I just never heard about the good news. I never heard what my condition was and what I needed to do uh, to, to be saved. And so maybe I'll escape God's wrath because I didn't have access to the word of God. And in verses 12 through 16, Paul cuts off that escape route. And in verses 17 through 29, the sort of second half of chapter 2, and this would be a particularly Jewish response, perhaps I'll escape God's wrath because I'm a Jew, one of God's chosen people. Surely God would not condemn me. And Paul goes to some lengths to express no, that is not a way around the wrath of God either. In each case, we'll find the apostle placing an impassable barrier in our path. There is no escape from this reality. You must face it. You must come to terms with it before you can move on to the good part of the good news of Romans. So bear with me. We have a few more weeks of bad news before we really get to where the gospel begins to shine in all of its beauty. Now today, we're only going to cover the first half of that passage of of verses 1 through 11. So we're going to look at just verses 1 through 5 today, and then we'll look at verses 6 through 11 next Sunday, Lord willing. I'm going to read for you Romans 2, 1 through 5, and then we'll walk through these verses in detail. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. May the Lord instruct our hearts in this word. The first major charge here that he makes, in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. And so you can see the major repeated exhortation in verses 1 through 3 is, don't judge others, right? You who judge, you have no excuse, literally no defense. You are without defense. You have no excuse when you're looking at other people's sin and judging them, Indeed, in judging others, condemning others, you are calling condemnation upon yourselves. So don't judge other sinners, right? That's the repeated exhortation here. But the obvious question that that raises is, in what sense are, do we abstain from passing judgment on others? I'll answer that question by doing two things. Number one, providing two senses of judgment that are not intended here when he says don't judge others there's a couple of ways in which he doesn't mean to exclude judgment and then secondly to examine the language here to discern what kind of judgment is in view so in other words part one what isn't he saying by don't judge others or you could dim yourself and then part two what is he saying what is the injunction here well first what it does not mean what it must not mean number one to make moral judgments. In other words, discerning right from wrong. When he says don't judge, he doesn't mean don't make any moral judgments about what's good and what's evil, about what's right and what's wrong. He can't mean that because we are repeatedly throughout the New Testament encouraged and commanded to make such judgments. In fact, later in this very letter, in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul tells us, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Well, how do we know what to hold fast to and what to abhor, to reject, to despise, unless we're making moral judgments about what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong? There is an expectation that as followers of Jesus, we are increasingly able to discern what's right from what's wrong and what's good from what's evil. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And he goes on to say, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So there's what's set in contrast to understanding the will of the Lord is foolishness. Clearly, he doesn't want us to be fools. He wants us to be wise. And part of wisdom is to know what is good and acceptable and pleasing to God. So we must make moral judgments. So when Paul says, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges, he must not mean everyone who is making determinations and discerning what is good and what is evil. We must make moral judgments. That is a necessary part of living as God's people. So that's not what he means. There's a second thing that, he, that I believe he does not mean when he says not to make judgments, particularly on others, and that's to admonish fellow Christians. 
to admonish fellow Christians, that is to correct one another within the body of Christ. Surely when he says you must not pass judgment on another or you condemn yourself, he is not here precluding the act of watchfulness and caring for one another within the body of Christ by observing and at times carefully, gently, lovingly pointing out error and behavior that does not honor Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing the congregation there about a man in their church who is uh, guilty of an obvious and publicly known sexual sin that the church has not only been tolerating, he says they've actually been celebrating it. Perhaps like, wow, we're so understanding and free-spirited, we let anybody get away with anything. I don't know if that's what they're celebrating or not. But Paul exhorts them to remove this man from their fellowship. And in the course of that exhortation, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Purge the evil person from among you. So he says, I'm not talking about judging the world. I'm not talking to you about casting out everybody who's a sinner, who's an outsider, because then you would have to leave the world, right? I'm talking about in the church. I'm talking about in the community of people who bear the name of Christ, who profess to believe in him and to follow him and thereby to represent him in the world. If there are those who bear the name of brother, he says, and they are living in ongoing, unrepentant, flagrant sin, the church is actually responsible to judge that sin by removing him from their midst. So surely the admonishment of fellow Christians, the the guarding of the integrity of the church by calling sin, sin when we see it, is not what he has in mind here when he says, if you pass judgment, you condemn yourself. He must be talking about something else. In fact, Jesus' own words in Matthew 7 are often victims of the same kind of misunderstandings, right? Uh, Jesus gives some teaching about judging others that the world actually thinks they like until they really come to understand what he's saying. So in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, this is part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the, same, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what is often assumed that Jesus means is, in millennial parlance, you do you, right? It's, it's all good, right? You decide what's right and good, and no one else is in a position to challenge you. And if that's what Jesus is saying, you can actually understand why that could be a popular message among people in our world. Hey, Jesus himself said, judge not, right? Let me do my thing. I determine what's right and good. You're not in a position... To challenge me. But if you keep reading, you'll find out immediately Jesus must mean something a bit different. So let me read you a few verses from Matthew 7. So he's just said, judge not that you be not judged, and t- talks about how we will be judged in response to the same kind of judgment we give others. And then he goes on to say this in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, so he doesn't say, don't worry about specks in each other's eyes. 
what he says is make sure that you're dealing with your own stuff first before you go and deal with the stuff of somebody else. And so this teaching of Jesus actually rebuffs both of the wrong senses of judgment that I've mentioned. So first of all, the identification of specks and logs in another's eyes is moral judgment. To notice a speck in your brother's eye is to recognize behavior that does not accord with God's law in some way. Indeed, the log in your own eye also represents a violation of God's law, and apparently an even more substantial one than your brother's, because his is a little speck and yours is a big log. And secondly, Jesus' exhortation to take the speck out of your brother's eye represents admonishment and exhortation among the people of God. To take the log out of my own eye is to deal with sin in my life. And to take the speck out of your eye is to deal with sin in yours. And it should be clear that Jesus is in favor of both exercises. Deal with your own sin and deal with your brother's sin. And implicitly give your brother permission to help you deal with yours. All of that is wrapped up in Jesus' teaching about judging so the judging that he's talking about, both in Matthew 7 and in Romans 2, is not a making of moral judgments, and it's not in the admonishing and ex exhortation that takes place among the people of God. So let's jump back to Romans 2 and try to make sense of what, what's going on there. I just lost my place. No, there it is. So when Paul says in verse 1, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. He does not mean make no moral judgments. Do not discern between evil and good. And he does not mean do not admonish and exhort fellow believers, encouraging them to more faithfully obey Christ. So, what kind of judgment is happening in Romans 2 that Paul is chastising people for doing? Well, one thing we need to observe is the word itself that is repeated four times in verses 1 through 3, the word judge. It's the Greek word krino, and it, it, is a, it is a judicial term. It's a courtroom term, and in fact, the, the word behind you condemn yourself in verse 1 is just a different form of the same root word. So really, it happens four, uh, five times within these three verses. But it means essentially this, to pronounce judgment, to subject to censure. In other words, it's a handing down of a punishment based on a judicial decree, all right? So a judge has made a ruling, and based on that ruling, punishments will be handed down, right? It is used of those who act the part of judges or arbiters in matters of common life or pass judgment on the deeds and words of others. So in other words, we're dealing with a courtroom term. And the judging that's going on in Romans 2, 1 through 3, is that of a self-righteous moralist who looks upon the sins of others with disdain, sets himself up as judge, jury, and executioner, and condemns people for their actions. That's what's going on here. It's the, the condemnation of other sinners because of their sin without any reference whatsoever to your own. Like the wicked servant, the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 that we spoke of at the beginning. 
in passing this kind of judgment, in acting as the judge and jury and executioner of other people, you are, he says, condemning yourself. So let me just apply this this way. Follower of Jesus, humble yourself before God. Think soberly about your sin. Romans 12.3 exhorts us, let no one think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So don't allow yourself, even for a moment, a platform high enough that it's possible to look down your nose upon another sinner. Every judgment you could ever consider meeting out to someone else is a judgment of which you are equally worthy in the sight of God. So we've got to know our vantage point as sinners when we're dealing with other sinners, when we're talking about sin in somebody else's life. And I would say whether that's inside the church or outside the church. We've got to remember that when we talk about sin and we observe evil in the life of somebody else, we must remember that we ourselves are sinners and in need of the very same grace. Well, the plot thickens a bit in the second half of verse 1. He said, you have no excuse, you have no defense, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Well, why? Why is my judgment on someone else's sin a condemnation of myself? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So we learn that not only are self-righteous moralists inclined to look down their noses at the sins of others, they're actually guilty of the very same sins themselves and are inclined to be a lot easier on themselves than they are on other people. Russell Moore says that sometimes people outside the church will tell him that the church is full of hypocrites. And he'll say, no, that's not true. There's always room for one more. There's a fundamental reality here that sometimes we pretend isn't the case. None of us really have our act together, do we? If God needed help dispensing judgment to sinners, would he really pick any of us to sit in his chair? Now, it's not necessary to take Paul too literally here in order to get his point when he says, you who pass judgment on others are guilty of the very same things. We don't need to necessarily take him to mean that for every sin there on the part of someone else, there is the exact replica of that sin in my life. Because then we could find escape routes for ourselves, right? Well, I haven't actually done that. So we don't need to take him too literally. But I would, as though like we're talking about actual murderers who are looking down on other murderers, right? We would do well to take two things into account. Number one, on the day of judgment, we're told in Romans 2.16, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Even the sins that nobody else knows about, God knows, God sees, and you will give an account. This is a reality. God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And the second thing to take into account here is that Jesus deepened the standard of the application of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. 
in the classic formula, you have heard that it was said, and then he repeats something from the law, but I say to you, and then he applies it in an even deeper way. So, for example, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that anyone who looks with hatred in his heart against his brother has already committed murder in his heart. So you don't have to have actually physically taken the life of a person for God to regard you as a murderer because you've murdered in your heart by your hatred and anger. So with that in view, Paul's admonishment in these verses may be something like this. You who rant against homosexual sin around you, do you secretly have a porn habit? You who nod with indignant approval when a murderer is convicted and imprisoned, are you nursing hatred and bitter anger against someone in your family or in your church? You who shout amen when the preacher says you shall not steal, are you lusting after the house or the job or the spouse of someone else that you know? We are fundamentally unqualified to sit in the judgment seat of God because we all have blood on our hands. That's the message of these verses. You who pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you're guilty of the same unrighteousness. In verses 2 and 3, Paul points out how stupid it is to think not only that we are qualified to occupy the judge's seat, but to even think that we ourselves will escape God's judgment. Look at this. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The NIV renders that as the judgment of God is based on truth. In other words, he is accurate in his assessment of sinners and will meet out perfectly just judgment. If that's the case, and if we are guilty of the same sins as those we are inclined to condemn, isn't God going to know that? Doesn't he see our twisted hearts, our sinful choices, our arrogant hypocrisy? Remember Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God sees it all. You might trick your wife. You might trick your neighbor. You might trick your pastor. You might even deceive yourself. But you won't deceive God. He sees it and he knows. So when you pass judgment on another, when you act as judge and jury and executioner for someone else because of the sin that they have committed, you are really saying, hey, God, judge me in the same way because I am just as guilty. Well, the only reason that we could even begin to think that we might somehow escape God's judgment is that he hasn't actually judged us yet, right? There has not yet been this divine judgment of God that's fallen. I have not yet been consigned to hell for eternity. And since it hasn't happened yet, maybe that means it won't happen at all.
Perhaps because God's judgment hasn't already fallen, we can begin to think, maybe I've made it. Maybe I've escaped God's wrath, and I don't have anything to worry about after all. Well, listen to Paul's response to that thinking in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, the phrase there, presume on the riches of his kindness, again, the NIV translates it, do you show contempt for his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, do you think that the reason God hasn't poured out his wrath on you yet is that you're actually not that bad after all? Maybe I've made it. Maybe he's decided my sin is not that big a deal, especially not compared to those other people with the real problems, right? We can trick ourselves into this kind of moral thinking. And if that's what you think, you've actually entirely missed the point of God's patience. He tells us explicitly and very simply, the only reason he hasn't yet poured out his judgment, look at this, he's giving us time to repent. That's it. That's the reason his judgment hasn't fallen yet, and he hasn't said enough already. He is giving sinners opportunity to repent. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? He postpones his punishment that we might leave our sin and turn to Christ in faith. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He is patient, but he will not be patient forever. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote this, Because God is slow to anger, men are more fierce in their sin, and not only continue in their old rebellions, but heap new upon them. If he spared them for three transgressions, they will commit four. They invert God's order and bind themselves stronger to iniquity by that which should bind them faster to their duty. A happy escape at sea makes men go more confidently into the deeps afterward. Sinner, repent. Repent. If you are not in Christ, flee to him today and seek his mercy. He receives all who come to him in simple faith. The riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience is all for the purpose of giving sinners opportunity to repent. And verse 5 shows us the sobering reality of what awaits sinners who refuse to repent, who make a mockery of, show contempt for the kindness and patience of God by never coming to him in repentance. The sobering reality that awaits is that non-Christians are storing up wrath for themselves by their sin on the day of wrath that's sure to come. The Bible speaks a great deal about this day. In the, New Testament, the Old Testament, it's often called the day of the Lord. The New Testament repeats that language, but also calls it the day of wrath or the day of Christ, or sometimes even just 
the day. It is an inescapable reality. There is a day coming when Christ will return, we read it together earlier, to judge the living and the dead. And when his people will be gathered to himself and all will be judged in righteousness. The separating of sheep and goats. There is so much about this in the scriptures. This day is coming. You cannot escape it. Rob Ventura likens this to a spiritual savings account with God, whereby every day that they sin, they make a deposit for themselves and accumulate more and more wrath for the day of judgment. That's not the kind of bank account you want. That's not the kind of savings account you want to be storing up with God, but in sin, that is what is happening. When we refuse to repent, when we refuse to acknowledge our evil and our wrongdoing, and we presume upon the kindness and patience of God, and sin and sin and sin and sin, we store up a savings account that's filled with wrath and judgment. And one day, He will pour it out upon us if we do not repent. Let me conclude in this way. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, then give unceasing praise and thanks to God who in his kindness has led you to repentance. This is the reality that will face every human being, and the only escape from it is trusting in Christ. And if he has led you to that place, and you have rested your life and staked your eternity upon him, praise God, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Don't forget it. Don't lose sight of it. Praise him for his kindness, the riches of his mercy to you in Christ. If you aren't a Christian, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, here's my simple plea. Please do it today before it's too late. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance like this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. God has been patient with you. And because you're still sitting here under his shining sun, you can be sure that his patience yet endures at least a while. But it won't endure forever. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, and I urge you to draw near to him in repentance and faith while his patience waits. 2 Peter 3.9 declares, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Like, why is God waiting? Why hasn't he brought the kingdom already? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friend, heed his warning and receive his mercy that you may find in Christ a haven of safety from his wrath on that day.
Let's pray together.